Philostrato said, In us, organic life has produced mind. It has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like what you call the blue mold, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it, by little and little, of course. Slowly, we learn now. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. Learn to build our bodies directly with chemicals. No longer have to stuff them full of dead brutes and weeds. Learn how to reproduce ourselves without copulation. For the moment, I speak only to inspire you. I speak that you may know what can be done, what shall be done here. This institute, Dio Mio, it is for something better than housing and vaccinations and faster trains and curing the people of cancer. It is for the conquest of death, or for the conquest of organic life, if you prefer. They are the same thing. It is to bring out of that cocoon of organic life, which sheltered the babyhood of mine, the new man. The man who will not die, the artificial man free from nature. Nature is the ladder we have climbed up by now. Now we kick her away. Of course, the power will be confined to a number, a small number of individual men, those who are selected for eternal life. And you mean, said Mark, it will then be extended to all men? No, said Philostrato. I mean it will then be reduced to one man, you are not a fool, are you, my young friend? All that talk about the power of man over nature, man in the abstract, is only for the canalia. You know as well as I do that man's power over nature means the power of some men over other men, with nature as the instrument. And that rather chilling transhumanist quote, which I should have read with an Italian accent, is from That Hideous Strength, a novel by C.S. Lewis, that he wrote... Uh, and it completed 80 years ago in the midst of World War II, 1943. It was first published in 1945. And today we're going to talk about that hideous strength as nonfiction. Uh, it's so good to have Susanna and my sister Mariana with us today. Welcome, Mariana. Hi, Pete. Hi, Susanna. Our resident C.S. Lewis uh, expert. <laughs> yeah, Mariana, you are, um, every time I tweet about this, you kind of, like are three steps ahead of me and thinking about how many times have you read this book? I actually haven't read it so many times. I've probably read it back three or four times. That's not bad. That's not, I think I've probably read it about the same number. Well, I read it, I think three times, twice a long time ago in college. And then once uh, I started yesterday and I, I finished at 1.30 in the morning, so if I say anything foolish, <laughs> that's why I kind of dreamed about it. But Susanna, before we get into it, uh, for our readers, our listeners, why are we talking about that hideous strength as nonfiction? Uh, there's a few key issues that uh, you and I were talking about before we started recording this. There are basically three issues that I think are interesting in this book that are also headline issues, as you might say. One is the question of bioethics and artificial intelligence and transhumanism, what it means to be human, what, what we do with science to overcome our humanity or to overcome the humanity of others. Um, then questions about our vocations as men and women and vocation in general, really. And then a, a question about how Christians should conduct themselves in the world and the question of the sort of related question of political power. And those are all so, so re related, aren't they? I mean, they are. Yeah. Mariana, 
you know, claims to have only read this three or four times, but she quotes this book constantly, which is probably why we invited <laughs> her on. Um, I, I started thinking about it again uh, back, what, three, four years ago when there was a lot of media coverage of a supposed head transplant um, where uh, there was this idea, I believe, primarily by a bunch of Chinese scientists that they were going to, or actually had, uh, you know, transplanted somebody's head onto a different body. And that, of course, figures pretty prominently in the book. We're going to try to do not too many spoilers, but this is, it's, it's not this the spoiler is unavoidable. There is a revivified or transplanted or still living head uh, from a famous scientist who is guillotined for poisoning his wife, but that's not really to the point. The point is, uh, C.S. Lewis, 80 years ago, was already imagining this head transplant thing. Um, but whether or not, you know, head tra transplants ever do really become a thing, God forbid, uh, the whole idea of it illuminates so much about what kind of goes by transhumanism today, right? This idea that we can conquer our biological givenness as human beings, um, that we're really just minds that the brain itself, if kept alive indefinitely, would be all that's interesting about us, um, all that's significant about a human being. Um, perhaps, you know, as Peter Thiel and others have been said to dream of, you know, we could upload that brain, you know, onto a computer, right? Except this head transplant, what is speaking through this head is really not the person. So they haven't revivified anything. They've actually um, crossed some kind of barrier and called down demons, which is actually um, the more important thing that happens in the book. Yeah. So what does happen in the book? We should, we should back up a bit. Where is this book happening? Okay. <laughs> you know, and before we get into all that, let's just bear in mind when this book is being written, right? Midst of world war two, um, same year that Lewis is working on this book. Uh, Ayn Rand publishes the fountainhead, uh, two years later when it comes out in its first edition, Animal Farm is published, and Brave New World is, you know, right in this whole same time period. Uh, what, why are people are thinking about this stuff is, is a question we should get into later, but what is C.S. Lewis putting together here? Um, he, uh, you know, background apparently was thinking about this head transplant, head revivification thing for, for years. Um, there's correspondence from 20 years earlier in, in the 20s, a German scientist apparently um, had first sort of theorized the po this possibility and that captured C.S. Lewis's attention. Um, already back in the early 20s, he wanted to p write a play or novel or something about it. Uh, so that, we meet that on the first page, right? Uh, we meet a woman called Jane who's kind of picks up a newspaper at the breakfast table and reads that a famous scientist has been guillotined what then? Marianne, do you want to walk us through kind of the setup of, of the whole novel? Because we're going to talk about it as nonfiction, but first we have to kind of get the fictional story in somewhere. Might as well be now. So it actually starts as the story of a young married couple, and they are kind of representatives of a lot of the problems of modernity in the way they approach their marriage and their life and their 
um, pretty basic people and they make a lot of have made a lot of mistakes already. Um, but the husband is an academic and he the, um, the college he worked, the university he works for um, is in the process of being subsumed into some kind of national institute for kind of improving everything. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of nasty politicking and so forth that goes along and, and he's swept right up into that and then eventually into this institute, which ends up being the organization that is doing the head reviving and calling down of demons, whereas his wife um, through no special merit of her own, ends up with a group of people who are, you know, representing the opposite. Um, and so they end up having a big showdown between the people who are interested in, you know, transhumanism and um, eradicating mankind in favor of, you know, pure, pure knowledge. Uh, artificial man and in, in artificial man. Um, versus a, a little group of people who are living in a, in a country household and, you know, growing winter vegetables and just getting along with each other as people. And so they have this fantastic showdown in the end where the wicked people get kind of trampled by elephants and like tigers come and eat them and so forth. Um, and and then the book ends and the, the married couple, you know, gets a second run at it and um, they're back together and they've tried to hopefully learn their lessons. So it's in, in a way, it's really a story about people trying to live as human beings, um, how to make families and societies um, in the face of, you know, the wicked um, temptations of um, power and um, really power, I guess, is, is the main and science misused. And the name of that couple is Mark. He's the sociologist, uh, notably uh, a sociologist who uh, is easily uh, turned aside and is tempted by NICE is the acronym, the National Institute for something or other. Coordinated experiments, I think. Coordinated National, experiments, National, correct. Yeah. It's very much like the kind of RAND corporation is the way that I think of it as, I'm sure, you know, one of the things in the back of Lewis's mind. It's this very kind of like 1950s-ish thing. And he was writing about it about, you know, 10 years before such things would become really common in the Cold War, um, but this vision of a kind of nationalized um, scientific uh, research institute that would apply science to social problems and to sorting everything out and a kind of, um, and the, the vision is this kind of energetic attempt to uh, take the approach of full mobilization for war against Hitler and apply it to kind of full mobilization for peace you know, as it turns out against, you know, the entire British public. Um, and that vision of kind of let's just organize everyone. Let's let's the liquidation just sort of anachronisms, out. the liquidation yeah. of anachronisms. Yeah. And we should also say that I believe Lewis was writing this at the same time as another book, a little much shorter book, not a nonfiction book called The Abolition of Man which should be read, he, he himself said that this was essentially a novelization of that, you know, much sort of shorter essayistic to the point um, discussion of questions of natural law and, and human nature and um, good, the, the sort of nature of the good and, um, and so on. And the question, as, as we've sort of talked about here, the real vision, it's, it's not so much, it shouldn't be thought of as a left or right political vision. And, you know, obviously he's 
pretty much pegged as right wing now, but he's very he does not think of himself that way. And I think that understanding the book that way is is to miss the point. He's very aware of both communism and fascism, and he's very aware of the problems of both, you know, capitalism, although we can talk about what, what I think he goes wrong with there later on. Um, as well as socialism, he's. This is not a. This is not so much a political issue as an issue of um, what the good guys are fighting for in this book is for humans to be humans as opposed to things. In that sense, not not dissimilar in certain ways from the lefty George Orwell, uh, 1984. And I found a great uh, little quote from Orwell, who actually reviewed the book when it came out in the Manchester Evening News. Uh, he said, uh, plenty of people in our age entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, and we are in sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. Which is why we're talking about it today, because I think Orwell was right. It's just interesting that or Orwell did not peg it uh, immediately as a reactionary book, although there's a big dose of Arthurian legend in there too. Yeah, I should just say the other two books that he uh, C.S. Lewis published during the early '40s were Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce, which are both books about um, uh, the lies we tell ourselves and the you know sins that um, we commit through. Um, a lot of it is self-deception, and I think that comes um, through with a lot of the characters. I think especially Mark, the husband in the book, is a very good at not really looking at his motives and then drifting into worse and worse things. Mm -hmm. And that C.S. Lewis is great on the psychology of that, of the, the psychology of not-so-bad people doing horrible things. Uh, yeah. There's just so much in here. Well, and it's it's being it's being led to do horrible things, and there's this. So he go he gets um, during the course of his in his mind his professional advancements, he gets involved with worse and worse people, and then at some point he actually commits a crime, and it describes how the moment when he'd kind of decided to cross that line was just happened, you know, while the, co the cocktails were being passed and everyone ha was having a merry time together, and and that you can be seduced into being a much worse person than you should be by not, you know, having the moral principles to notice that moment and then turn back from it. So a little couple of things we should say up front. Uh, this counter to NICE, to the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, is in fact an outpost of Arthurian England, right? Um, so the kind of true England, uh, in, in Lewis's view, and we'll no doubt be discussing the role of Arthurian legend, a love of Lewis's all his life, um, in the book, there's also the title itself, that hideous strength, right? Um, the, the epigraph of the book kind of point where that comes from. Right. So that is, I think the epigraph is from David Lindsay, not the David Lindsay who wrote The Voyage to Arcturus, which is a sort of favorite um, science fiction novel of, of Lewis's that Lewis liked, um, that was written, I think, in the 20s, but another David Lindsay. And the epigraph is the shadow of that hideous strength, six miles or more it was of length. And it's the reference to the Tower of Babel. So 
this is very much like a vision of technological society that is seeking to do what technological society starting with the Tower of Babel has always done, um, which is to reach essentially reach terms without being subject to God's rule and without being sort of who we are in, in the cosmic order, but trying to be someone else in the cosmic order, um, i.e. to make ourselves gods. And that is the sort of TLDR version of what Lewis thinks transhumanism is all about. And one of the really fascinating things to me is just, you know, we're, we're doing this podcast in a moment when artificial intelligence and the chat GPT and all of these sort of um, computerized versions of consciousness, uh, according to their proponents and you know, what they actually are, you know, is probably too, more, more will be revealed. Um, it, these are things that are in the news now. And the vision of attempting to both take human beings, take each of each individual person and make ourselves immortal in some way, and also to create human-ish um, things that will be immortal and that aren't biological and that aren't subject to the limits of biology, but are sort of pure machine and pure information. That is such an, it's, it seems very modern, but Lewis points to it not being very modern at, you know, at all. This is some, this is a very old dream. And the nature of that dream, I think, that nightmare is, is what he's really examining here. Well, so we go through, you know, those hot button points that you mentioned at the beginning, Susanna, perhaps one by one. The first, this one of bioethics we've already gotten into, and of course, uh, the quote I read at the beginning uh, points to it, this idea that we will conquer organic life, which is the same thing as death, according to Philo Strato, who is this Italian uh, genius scientist who is helping to tend the guillotined head uh, at the NICE headquarters and believes uh, that by you know developing this technology, he's figured out a way uh, to ensure immortality for the chosen few, as it turns out. And the idea of, you know, physically remove, like the, the actual physical head, like that's, I, I'm sure that if Lewis had been, you know, had, had sort of been another 10 years along in history when he was writing this, he would have sort of come across the idea of uploading a mind. Like this is, it's not about the physical head, it's about the mind and making the mind into something that's not tethered to organic life. Well, in fact, the head itself is is altered, right? There's uh, yeah. a, a deliberate, um, the brain of this mind is fed to grow it to superhuman proportions. In fact, they have to remove the top of the skull to allow the brain to bubble out, right? In a way that's symbolic, but, you know, kind of, similar to the superhuman mental powers that are ascribed to um, artificial intelligence now um, by both their proponents and critics. And the vision of sort of what you're what you want to do with this is it's a little bit unclear. Like it's a little bit unclear what it is that the ambition is. Um, and that vagueness of ambition has actually been a feature of this kind of batch of, of humans throughout the, this is the third of C.S. Lewis's um, space trilogy. And in the first one, um, Weston, who's the sort of villain of, of that 
um, book had this, you know, ambition to, for humans to travel to space and to, and also to evolve in, into, you know, more, more excellent versions of humanity or post-humanity. And that kind of like, we, we're not exactly sure what we want, but we want to be everywhere and be different, but it'll still be us. But, but we're just, we're after something, we're after more, we're after kind of um, immortality, omnipresence, um, and independence. Well, I think there's a suggestion, right, that just pure intelligence has some kind of, you know, value of its own that just smart, you know, to do what not, but but that everything is just going to be reduced to these heads and, and organic life will be gone, and it'll be pure mind will be left in the end. Um, to what end, as you say, it's really it doesn't make any sense at all. Mark actually has this Mark has this conversation with the people at the top of the nice hierarchy uh, about just this, uh, where he asks, you know, is it is it right to be doing what we're doing? And they essentially answer, well, we can. So therefore, just as, you know, any organism in evolution, you know, thrives and outcompetes others because it can. So we too, uh, since we are now able to do this, we should. Yeah. And that's actually Weston in the in the first book has this one line where he says the the might or if you will, the right of humans to, to do this is obvious. So he's it, there's an equation there of might and right. And um <sighs> It, again, we get back to the Arthurian um, antithesis of this, which, you know, for all those fans of the musical Camelot, I, I'm really sorry. <laughs> the, there's, it's actually, no, so that's, that's straight out of, out of um, The Once and Future King. So this is a huge, this, this was the other book that I read and reread probably about the same time that I, in high school when I was reading this book, um, that might is not right. There are all these antitheses that are set up between um between St. Anne's and Belbury, which are the two. So Belbury is the location of the NICE and St. Anne's is this kind of like, um, you know, Arthurian court made up of a couple of elderly people. And then, you know, um, the new Pendragon, spoilers, and Jane and her old cleaning lady, her former cleaning lady, who's not old, who's Jane's age, in fact, um, and a couple of others. Um, th this kind of Arthurian court, which is the core of the, the real England, as, as Lewis hypothesizes it, is set up as the exact opposition of, of Belbury because it's the real thing. And Belbury is the NICE is the um, on every point. It's kind of like parody and, you know, wicked version. There's and the real um, what you really begin to get is that, you know, evil doesn't have any creative power. There's there's no there's nothing new. There's only um, inverted there's only sort of subverted or inverted or grasped after goodness. And so one example of that, I think, is actually the um, this sort of vision of um, immaterial intelligence. So humans, there's nothing there's nothing bad about immaterial intelligence. God, you know, before the incarnation, you know, was an immaterial intelligence. Angels are immaterial intelligences. And to get in touch with that immaterial realm is actually part of our destiny as human beings, but not on our own terms. And actually with the, incarna with the incarnation 
and with sort of the sort of the the ultimate vision that that God's been carrying out in history, there's this unification of heaven and earth of the immaterial, the spiritual and, and earthly realms, which is basically the spiritual coming down to the earthly rather than the earthly being abolished and taken up exclusively into the spiritual, which is a fascinating like um, contrast between the two. See, I see St. Anne's, I, I never really occurred to me, it, it, it never really occurred to me as an Arthurian court. To me, it's just like an extended household of people. And I think this is one of the things that people love about this book is you just have this um, really randomly assorted household of people who are there because they're decent people and they've kind of conglomerated there and then they end up being kind of like the last stand, you know, before the powers of evil. Um, I, I think it was also influenced what... Um, so a few years ago, I read through C.S. Lewis's um, collected correspondence, which I was working on a book project about George MacDonald. So I wanted to find out everything he, that C.S. Lewis um, had said about him. So I read through and um, the, his letters, of which there are many. Um, and so his other main, major correspondent at this time, or one of his major correspondents at this time, was an Anglican nun called Sister Penelope Lawson, who lived at a convent pretty close to Oxford, and he visited there a few times. And I think that there is an aspect of um, that monastic life as well that's reflected in this vision of this kind of withdrawn household, you know, the walled garden and so forth, um, that is held up as, as the kind of ideal um, human society. Um, and, and, you know, some of the people in there are, you know, profound scholars and, and you know, um, deep thinking, uh, wise people, um, and some of them are, you know, simple people who are there because they are, you know, they're trying their best to be good, and they all get to be part of this society. So while we're on the, the transhumanism piece, and we're reading this book as nonfiction, which isn't fair, because if you haven't read this, or even if you read it a long time ago, like I only had until yesterday, um, you should pick it up because it's just a great read. It's a great novel as a novel. What other points that are kind of relevant to the, our discussions about artificial intelligence and transhumanism and bioethics in general, uh, does, does C.S. Lewis kind of look forward to f from 80 years ago? What, what about our current movement? Uh, can this book kind of help us think better about these things? I think something that might belong under that heading is actually the attitude towards the land and towards animals which kind of seems seems tangential but it's pretty it's pretty much baked in there and i think it's very closely related so there's this you know wonderful um very intensely beautiful description of a little garden with a or a sort of forest area with a well a holy well at the center um which that that area is um taken over by the NICE and dug up and everything that, you know, all the walls of the, the gardens are pulled down and everything is just becomes mud. And so there's a kind of destruction of, you know, old growth forest. There's a destruction of a kind of man-made plus natural, um, you know, gardens within gardens landscape that was remarkably beautiful. And then there's also this massive vivisection lab that that is part of the NIC. And that's kind of um, this household at St. Anne's, which contains it's very landscapey and very English and very kind of tucked away. And, you know, they are growing vegetables and they're there's it's a little homestead. And 
the relationship between um, Ransom, who's the 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 King Arthur figure, the the Lord of the household, and the animals is remarkable for being. It is a power. It is a. It's a vision of the power of a man of man over the animals, but a totally different kind of power than the power that you get by vivisecting someone, you know, a creature. So a tr- uh, dominion truly understood. So Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis with humankind being given responsible for responsibility for the natural world and especially for the animals, uh, that kind of stewardship, that lordship over the animal realm, uh, being done in the right way, in a kind of loving and respectful way that actually allows for communication with, you know, the bear and uh, the jackdaw and the mice. So that's another one of those kind of antitheses, I think, that you can see between the two that I think falls under the transhumanist or bioethics discussion. Well, I did have to think about it because of the recent enthusiasm over the last 18 months or so for uh, vat-grown meat, right, that we're not going to subject animals to farming anymore. Um, And in fact, we should abolish farming and especially abolish um, regenerative farming uh, because it's it's the thing, even more to a certain degree than um, the horrors of industrial uh, meat production that kind of stand in the way of us um oh i don't know just getting ourselves out of this cycle of eating brutes and weeds that philostrato talks talks about and instead you know scientifically in big uh technical laboratories producing the protein we need uh to get through life the other thing i would come under the um heading of bioethics of course is there's it's um, from the quote pete read at the beginning learn how to reproduce ourselves without copulation and that's one of the themes in the book is the desire by the people at the nice institute um to generate babies without um you know divorced from marriage and divorced from sex um but just um similar to brave new world um lab-grown infants and there's you know been horrifying um pictures of that I've seen circulating on social media of of people's ideas of how that could look in real life. I thought it was just uh, interesting as a side note that the genesis of a lot of these ideas is in the German research university of the 20s and 30s. Uh, So, you know, everything from this idea of of head transplants to... uh, Invasive surgery, um, but also particularly in the area of of reproduction, um, they all sort of were bred in this very eugenic type of climate that was prevalent in the German research universities in the 20s and 30s. So that's actually probably a pretty good transition to the um, one of the topics that we wanted to flag about this, which is the book's discussion of marriage and sex, which is one of the things that Lewis gets a lot of flack for. I think it's probably safe to say about this book, but I don't think he deserves the flack. Um, I mean, I think he deserves some flack for some things, but I don't actually think that he is the monster of sexism that he is presented as in in criticisms, the criticisms of this book. Well, to get it out of the way, what's the case against Lewis? Lewis as sexist reactionary. 
one piece of it is is essentially the end, right? I mean, without this is not a spoiler, but at the end, uh, Jane, the wife, um, returns to her husband, and the first thing he she notices is that his shirt has been thrown um, over a chair and out the window where it's getting damp, and uh, the way that she begins her new life is by cleaning up after her slovenly husband. Something that probably happens in my house. <laughs> Um, and this is sort of in contrast to what she had thought was her job in the world or w was what she wanted to do, um, which was to finish her doctoral dissertation on John Donne. And yes, it is very, very easy to read this as Lewis saying women shouldn't be scholars, women should be wives. And combined with the, the fact that Jane and Mark have, you know, they've been married for six months at the beginning of the book, she's not pregnant because they've been contracepting. And one of their, you know, part of their sort of sanctification or their their repentance, their transformation is that they are not going to be doing that anymore. And so the vision of, all right, women should not be scholars, they should just be wives and mothers. And like that is something that is extremely irritating to people. I don't think that that's a fair reading of what Lewis thought about women or um, of Jane in general, because I think that Jane's problem and Mark's problem are actually the same problem. Um, and that's inflected through kind of male and female versions, but it, it it's not fundamentally a different problem. Um, I could make my case, but does anyone have anything else to add about the case against Lewis? I agree with you. I've always struggled to figure out how this one scene at the end of the book with the, the you know, the wet shirt um, should kind of throw the whole thing into disrepute you have in this book. Well, in the first place, Jane, you know, although neither half of the couple is is that great as a human being. I mean, she's a little better than he is. Um, so it's not it's not like he spends the whole time throwing her under the bus. And, and she's the, the thing with the the dissertation she's trying to write is that she's a bad scholar. She's you know, it's not that she's a woman. It's just like it's really not her thing. And she's writing a boring paper that nobody needs um, to go back again. Just you know, maybe special pleading, but his um, friendship with this nun, Penelope Lawson, who was a scholar of um, classical texts, and he got in touch with her because she asked him to write uh, the introduction to uh, her translation of Athanasius um, on the Incarnation, which is this famous um, essay, now I've forgotten which one it is, on reading great, on reading old books. Um, but so he, he knew, and of course in Oxford he knew as well, you know, many women scholars and the idea that just because she was a woman wasn't, she wasn't going to be respected for her mind is to me is, is just like, doesn't make a lot of sense. But there is something in the book that, you know, is bound to disturb you know, a certain kind of uh, gender theorist, because Lewis does insist that there are male and female vocations, that there is a masculine and fem feminine, uh, and that, you know, you, me, individuals need to align ourselves with kind of what we're made to be. Yeah. And the way that I think that is this is best understood is, is a question of of nature and vocation. So we all, in his vision, we, we all have, you know, natures as humans and as, as men and women. 
And then we all have a kind of vocation to live out those natures in various ways. And that actually is related a bit to, you know, the vocation in the more traditional sense, like what is your job? And the problem with Jane and Mark, they, they both have the same general problem, which is that they have this intense desire to be taken seriously and to be thought of as adults. And that is related to what they want their work to be. And what they want their work to be is not, in fact, what their work, what their actual vocations are. So, you know, it's not totally clear what Mark's actual vocation is, because I don't think that Lewis would really approve of him being even an academic sociologist, because I don't think he likes sociology. Um, but it's certainly not the case that Mark's vocation is, you know, doing a kind of irritating political conspiracy to, you know, oppress the entire world um, and, you know, throw all of his linguistic ability, which he's he's a good writer, which is like the one thing that he's good at, um, throw his linguistic ability behind kind of bamboozling and, you know, lying through the press to the British public. And it's also not the case that Jane should be a Dunn scholar because she's not a very good one. Um, and both of them want to be doing these things. They want to be um, doing their kind of fake work because it seems to me that their problem is that neither of them have grown up properly. They both have this kind of desire to be seen as grownups, um, but it's, the, it's like the kind of desire that you have when you're 14 and you really want people to take you seriously. And it's not an actual adult vision of what being an adult is. And for both of them, they kind of have to do the same thing, which is learn how to be an adult man and woman in real relationship to each other and to God and to other people, um, and in real relationship to the work that they're meant to be doing in the world, um, as opposed to this kind of like desire for a kind of, um, to, like, I, I want to be... I want to be taken seriously. I want to be part of the the big things that are going on. I don't want to be just doing, you know, academic work. I don't want to be cooking and cleaning for my husband. Those are both like, I, I want to be on the inside of something. What happens in the book is, is the people who are actually inside of doing something are just the people who are living in a household together. Like just being human beings together, that's that's actually the great calling that ends up winning over this big, you know, well-organized institute. I do have on this subject uh, words from C.S. Lewis himself defending himself against this charge. Uh, right from the time he wrote the book, shortly afterwards, uh, some friends of him, Daphne and Cecil Harwood, complained about Jane's not being a very original thinker in the book. And he replied to them, uh, this is September 1945, regarding Jane, she wasn't meant to illustrate the problem of the married woman and her own career in general, rather the problem of everyone who follows an imagined vocation at the expense of a real one. Perhaps I should have emphasized more the fact that her thesis undone was all derivative bilge. If I'd been tackling the problem which Cecil thinks I had in mind, of course I'd have taken a woman capable of making a real contribution to literature, which Jane wasn't, and actually, um, interestingly enough, in an earlier version of the book, uh, Jane was meant to be a biochemist, also not a very good biochemist, presumably. Uh, C.S. Lewis felt he just couldn't carry it out. Uh, he didn't know enough about biochemistry to make her 
uh, research interests convincing, whereas he felt on safer ground making fun of her um, doctoral thesis on Dunn. Uh, she wanted to write about Dunn's triumphant vindication of the body, ironically enough. Where does that land us, though? So there is this task that everyone has, this true vocation that everyone has, which Marianne just uh, referenced, you know, is kind of in building this community right at St. Anne's on the Hill, uh, where everyone is playing their role. They're literally growing cabbages and taking care of some animals. Um, but Jane and Mark also have a very specific vocation, which is actually just to be parents, right? Um, so from my point of view, uh, yeah, by today's standards, C.S. Lewis's portrayal of Jane, you know, could be read um, as being a put down. Um, it's actually Mark who's really the, the target every bit as much as her. Uh, just as Jane has sacrificed her vocation of motherhood, in pursuit of this supposedly serious career, uh, Mark in spades has sacrificed his vocation as a father uh, or his potential vocation as a father uh, in pursuit of something much more ignoble than, than Jane. You know, there's something a lot worse about screwing up the whole world um, than writing a bad doctoral thesis on Dunn. And there's a, a false masculinity about what, how he goes about it, always, you know, wanting to curry favor with men that he sees as more powerful or who are, you know, farther advanced into this circle that he wants to break into. But it's very tied up with his you know, status, um, which, you know, is a kind of a, a much worse pastiche of being a man than maybe Jane is of being a woman. Yeah. And it should be said, I mean, the other sort of like, there, there are kind of two other points here in Lewis's favor, um, which is that the actual work of the household at St. Anne's, the kitchen, like the, the making making the meals, the men and the women um, swap off from day to day. Um, apparently, Lewis thought that men and women couldn't really work together that well at, you know, cooking things, but they can work perfectly well, you know, in turns. So it is, it's not just that, like, the women are there to serve the men at St. Anne's. Um, and... The actual work that they're that they're doing is deeply frustrating to McPhee, who is one of the um, funniest characters. He's this kind of like atheistic Scotsman um, who really is not so sure about any of the supernatural stuff and doesn't believe in God, at least not initially. But he is very much on the side of literally the angels, um, whether or not he realizes it, because he has a, a deep kind of honesty, and um, his sort of frustration with the the work of St. Anne's is that it's not direct enough. Like you can see him kind of, he's the kind of person who might be interested in going to Bellary if he thought it was doing something very practical for the good. Um, and there's this, that kind of leads us to the third big, I guess, talking point or um, headline-y kind of issue that I think the book addresses really well, which is the question of, um, basically political power or the way that Christians should be in the world um, and the kind of methods that they should use to aim at the good and the way that you can actually, the methods that you use can kind of dictate the direction that you go in. Like you can't really use the methods of the devil essentially to pursue God's ends. So Christians, yeah, shouldn't use the methods of the devil in pursuing their political ends. So how should Christians pursue 
the political good, according to Lewis. I mean, in this book, they really don't do much. They, they literally just live together and kind of wait for their moment to come. Yeah. And there is a kind of, there's a very, there's a character here who is very clearly based on G.K. Chesterton called Deniston, um, who's a distributist. And there is a very kind of like the politics of a single household as um, creating good politics for the entire world. And the, the, the fact that um, you can't try to make over people from the outside, like you can't, you know, tinker with a society in even with the best intentions um, to fix it through political or technological power. There's no technique of being politically well-ruled. And I think one clue to what good politics would look like or good power is just that it's very undemocratic. It's not undemocratic in the kind of like um, sort of vaguely communistic, you know, overbearing um, way that 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 Bellbury operates or the NICE operates, but it is undemocratic in the sense of the, the order between people um, and doing your best sort of to to show up for the the role that you have in the world is the root of all good political order, I think, in, in this vision. And to a certain degree, I think Lewis would think that you kind of have to, at least the way that it's presented in the, in the novel is, you kind of have to leave the big picture stuff to God and show up for your own job. Um, and there there is big picture political stuff going on, but it's probably not your business. It's, it's the business of various principalities and powers. Um, and the good ones are you know, under God's direction as you are. So you should show up for your job. Well, it's it's undemocratic for sure, but then it's also very clearly not. Um, so, so there's this exchange between Jane and an older woman who's kind of her confidant in the house, and they're talking about Ivy, who's the servant woman. And um, Jane's kind of raising her eyebrows that, you know, Ivy's even there and what's she doing here? And and Mrs. the older woman's like, you never were goose enough to think that you were spiritually um, superior to her, did you? Which Jane probably, in fact, did. Um, but this idea that, you know, everyone has their different station, but, you know, the calling is ultimately the same and isn't, you know, we're, we're not on a higher level because we're writing a thesis on done rather than, you know, cleaning the house. There's a beautiful uh, conversation, if I could just read, uh, from the book, where Jane has a conversation with Ransom, the director, the Pendragon, uh, the head of this Arthurian household, about equality. Um, she's talking actually about her relationship to her husband, but he generalizes it more, more widely. I, I, I find this striking, and I'd be interested to hear both your thoughts on this. Uh, equality, said the director, we must talk of that some other time. Yes, we must all be guarded by equal rights from one another's greed because we are fallen, just as we must all wear clothes for the same reason. But the naked body should be there underneath for the clothes, ripening for the day when we shall need them no longer. Equality is not the deepest thing you know. I always thought that was just what it was. I thought it was in their souls that people were equal. You were mistaken, said he gravely. That is the last place where they are equal. Equality before the law, equality of incomes, that is very well. Equality guards life. It doesn't make it. It is medicine, not food. You might as well try to warm yourself with a blue book. So uh, no equality in souls, according to Lewis. 
I think that's actually the the bit that I remember most clearly from my first reading. Like that's the bit that hit me hardest when I read it the first time because I had never read anything else like it. And I, I love it as well. So yeah, that's straight out of George MacDonald. Um, so this idea as, I mean, I won't repeat it, but um, yes. And of course it's a deeply Christian idea uh, actually. So Christianity, the New Testament speaks very much of equality that we're all one in Christ, members of one body. It does uh, that in Christ there is you know no male, no female, no Jew and Gentile. Uh, Jesus though also speaks of some being great in the kingdom of God, and I guess the the catch and the very important catch is that those who are great in the kingdom of God versus those who are small are not who we think they are. Yeah, it's there's an inversion. And, you know, there is a, there's a, there's a way in which um, sort of playing out your role in a kind of social order in Lewis's vision can be a, an echo of that kind of heavenly kingdom. So um, in marriage, in, you know, he was very much a monarchist, um, you know, in, in sort of loyalty to uh, the king at that point in, in 1943 and later to the queen. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's no guarantee that the king or the queen is going to be, you know, a, a high-ranking person in, in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm trying to remember, I think there there was, Mariana, do you remember, there was something in um, The Great Divorce where there's a, a woman who's like very clearly in this vision of heaven so the, I forget the name, but there's this beautiful scene where where this great lady, you know, is approaching and no, she's just splendid beyond description. And she turns out to have been a humble woman from East London who, you know, took care of all the neighborhood cats um, and, and people and that she's one of the greatest, you know, queens in heaven. And there is this is to a certain degree biblical. There's there's the the line as as. Um, stars differ from one another in glory there's rank among the angels and there's rank among to a certain degree at least um degrees of holiness or degrees of ability to um reflect god's you know glory in heaven and who knows how that works it certainly does not reflect the social order here um but there's also a kind of um love of a fairly trad social order that that Lewis does have, and that that is a kind of tension that I think he recognizes, and that Christians have always recognized. Um, you can kind of love, you know, have a kind of suspicion of, uh, as well as love for a social order. Here, it, it's never the final word, but it can sort of reflect the final word if you do it right. So I guess one thing that. Lewis's book has to say about how should Christians, you know, promote the common good uh, to use, you know, that lingo, um, is to live your vocation, live out your vocation. Uh, and v very precisely in a negative sense, not to do what nice does, which is to seize the political moment and uh, attempt to um, force through um, a vision of the perfect society. There is actually a, a character in the book who kind of reminds me of a Munsterite Anabaptist, 
um, he wants to immunize the eschaton <laughs> and he wants to use uh, technology to do so, right? He wants to achieve uh, the resurrection of the dead uh, and the life everlasting, the kingdom to come now using technological means. Uh, it's a kind of crazy guy called Strake. Maybe not the most effectively drawn um, character in the book, but he definitely, you know, is fully uh, Christian inflected. I mean, he's he's quoting the Bible, you know, every direction in the service of political power. And interestingly enough, he's portrayed as being particularly vulnerable to uh, the temptations of what do turn out to be demons. Precisely because he's not, you know, his sins, not the sins of the flesh. Like he's basically, he's pure pride and doesn't realize it in a certain way. He's, he is pure self-righteousness. And that he's actually, I wonder whether, is, is it now the time that we can turn to uh, the question of what did Lewis get wrong? Well, you, you two did a pretty good job of absolving him of the most obvious objection, which is the, the sexism one. So you, you seem to have agreed that he is hereby acquitted. And nobody should raise that ever again. Well, nobody should because it's <laughs> so boring. But on the other, so here's a man who was writing in the 1940s and like his way of talking about, you know, the relationship between men and women is different from it, how it is in 2023. And well, it's just so boring to talk about it. Like, so that that's on the one hand um, that, yeah, that's basically it. Like, like you could also read a book that was written, you know, 80 years ago and just say, well, look at that, um, something old. Um, and and I would say the same about this whole, which I see is the next thing on the list here, this uh, loggers versus Britain thing that, you know, the true England and this kind of romanticization of a national soul. Um, I read that and it just gets a quiet smile for me. Like it's, you know, it's, it's something you wrote about in your book, but it's really not very real. And we can't, you know, let's not try to base our, you know, system around this, kind of, you know, technique that you kind of use to write about um, this society here. Okay, well, I'm not sure I agree on that one. We should get into that, and we should explain first what's going on. So C.S. Lewis opposes uh, the Britain, the modern technological Britain, represented by the NICE, to Logris, to the sort of semi-mythical Arthurian real England, right, that's underneath. And he has this beautiful passage, which I, I love too, where he says, you know, the the England of 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 Sydney, right? Uh, Sir Philip Sydney, the Elizabethan uh, poet, is opposed to the England of Cecil Rhodes, the racist, grasping, commercialized, and vulgar colonialist, right? That both these things are true about England, but one is this truer England that lies beneath. So so far, so good. And he says. And it must be said, right? He says the same about France, uh, the same about China. There is a, a kind of true version of each of these countries. Since we're talking about this as nonfiction, though, I do think this is one place where I, I, I in my mind, C.S. Lewis, you know, is a little one-sided or is not fully representing a, a Christian view of these things. Because... For him, and the way the book is set up, the emphasis is so strongly on one's vocation within the national community in which one is born. 
um, that national identity looms extremely large for him. Uh, so the, it reminds me of uh, the last book of the Narnia series. Again, a passage I love. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking it. Where, uh, you know, there is this sort of fictionalized eschatology that they have kind of come to the true eternal world. And each of the countries is like a peninsula going out from this, you know, kingdom of God, essentially. One is the true England, and there's a, a true France, and a true Ireland, and a true, you know, Brazil. Um, but it does seem, just, just that image, it works fine in fiction. But if we're talking about this as nonfiction, I have a problem with it, because I'm not sure uh, that giving that kind of sort of metaphysical centrality uh, to, you know, the calling of the different nations is kind of justified. And, you know, I just had to think for myself, you know, I'm a dual citizen of two countries. Like, which peninsula am I on? I think the fact that he's writing during a major war might have, you know, informed that a little. But back to what I was saying before, th this is where I actually... Uh, Yes, you know, I, I think he over exit, but that's, I think, an aspect of this book actually being fiction is that, you know, you have this little conceit that you're kind of working with how seriously he actually took it. I don't know, but, you know, similarly to this scene where he has the, um, you know, the planetary angels come down and, and so forth, like some things are, you know, flights of fancy that are part of a novel. Um, but if we want... If we want to be talking about this as nonfiction, then yes, you know, I, I agree that it, it d does go a little bit far, too far. And, you know, as Pete said, we are from, you know, we're all from families that started in many different places. And as St. Paul says, we don't have a continuing city here on Earth and we shouldn't. So he's a bloody, he's, a, he's an Anglican is yeah. what he is, <laughs> is that he is convinced of the special English way. And this was all leading up to this. And I feel attacked. And that there's I feel a special attacked. Yeah, no, you should as well. You should. Um, there's a, 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 a specific national expression of the faith. Uh, and I, that's not really Christian. No, I, I mean, the thing, the, the thing that I had actually noticed in this read. So I, I guess I kind of do want to like push back a little bit. So I do think that the question of like, oh, well, he's he's being a little bit reactionary in terms of gender. I don't actually think he's being a little bit reactionary in terms of gender, but like not that reactionary. I think he's he's getting well, at something real. No, I, is, I agree. So I just well, I just don't think we need to necessarily apologize for somebody being reactionary yeah. to the standards of today. I'm extremely reactionary. Like I'm not going <laughs> to okay. apologize for it. <laughs> go on, go on. Um, but the question of national, like national natures, I think is a it's a it's a bridge farther than this the question of you know na the nature of me as a woman or something like that. The nature of me as a, an American woman, or I guess you know I'm about to get dual citizenship myself, so as an American and English woman, um, that is that's getting that that is sort of like bringing ontology where I, I don't think it belongs i think that there is a there is a vision that i think is true and there's a beauty there but i don't think we're very good at um figuring out how to deal with it i don't think we should ignore it 
um, you know, I do love the the existence of different national cultures and different sort of national, um, you know, different expressions of human, of of human the human thing, um, as kind of filtered through different lang linguistic traditions and, and nations and um, and countries, and I would hate to live in a world where there was just one monoculture, and I do think that like realizing that Lewis was writing this in the face of you know, a German empire, an incipient German empire that was going to make all of Europe into, and possibly beyond that, into one flat monoculture um, or into a sort of master culture and a bunch of slave cultures shouldn't be overlooked. I think he was, there is a kind of like preservation of national um, individuality that was reflected even in, for example, the UN Declaration of, of Human Rights, which um, included the right to national self-determination, which was something that in the face of Nazism was held to be like a preservation of um, cultural dignity of, of everyone, not just of, you know, the Reich. Um, so I think that is there in the background and I think it's a real and a good thing. And I also do think that like, there is such a thing as Englishness. And I, you know, I'm sitting here in the Midlands and I can, there is there is a reality to this. I just think we're really, we don't quite know what to do with it. And I think we don't always need to figure that out. Like we don't, we, we certainly don't need to make a political program out of it because that tends to go quite badly. Yeah, well, I think, you know, and I can live with that. So, and, and as you know, I have a soft spot for the German romantics. And, and weirdly enough, a lot of the, the language about Germany's historical destiny, right? Um, came from a time in the early 1800s when there wasn't a Germany, when it was occupied territory by Napoleonic armies. And uh, in that context, the idea of a specific German destiny in history was uh, emancipatory, uh, anti-imperial. Uh, well, I think imperial is, is almost the wrong world, word. It was a very idealistic sense that, you know, like this people who's been living in this country with their ordinary ways, um, do not deserve to just be overrun by uh, all-powerful people who care nothing army. for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so th that I can go with. But I guess what it boils down to me is, yeah, like we need to find a way of putting that in its right place. And it certainly isn't on the level of the calling of Mark to be a good man and a good father and a good husband uh, or of Jane to do likewise as his wife. Um, they don't have a similar calling or at least it's not on the same level to be, you know, a good Englishman and a good English woman. There is something that I noticed on this read through that I hadn't before, which kind of is a good sort of corrective or pushback. And I think sort of fleshes out Lewis's vision because you know, he was an Orthodox Christian. He didn't, believe in, you know, a, a sort of religious national destiny in in a kind of deeply flaky way, um, which is that the whole of St. Anne's was funded and set up by um, Ransom's married sister who lived in India, who had been a kind of friend of this figure who's an Indian Christian mystic called, the, the word is the Sura. And I, you know, I, I had sort of like skipped over that part um, when I'd read, read it initially, but having done a little mini biography of Sadhu Sundar Singh, who was, um, you know, an 
Indian Christian mystic who, um, exactly as the story did, sort of vanished mysteriously a couple of years before Lewis was writing this. And who had visited Europe. And who had visited Europe. Like, this is, like, clearly a reference to this guy in the way that Denison is a reference to Chesterton. And that vision of a kind of, like, global conspiracy of God's people, um, inflected through, you know, national traditions, sure, but, like, certainly not bounded by those national traditions, actually makes a lot more sense to me, or is at least is a is a good corrective to the kind of national destiny vision of Britain and Logros. So I have one other thing that falls under this heading of what did Lewis get wrong? I'm not even sure he got it wrong, um, but it's sort of an absence. And that is uh, capitalism. So in the little section I read a few minutes ago where he talks about equality, um, Ransom seems to be just fine with a pretty extreme form of social democracy, equality of income, he mentions, um, certainly equality of political rights. Um, and Lewis was in many ways prescient and prophetic. Uh, uh, in the midst of World War II, uh, he saw the danger of the totalizing power of the state allied with big business, um, that after the war, when this sort of total war machine no longer had battles to fight, that it would be turned to other purposes. So we kind of foresaw the military industrial complex or whatever kind of complex you want to diagnose in our society today of this sort of totalizing union of, you know, force and uh, economic power. Um, that said, there's a weird kind of absence uh, in sort of the economic side of this new community that's being born. Now, they, they are all living together and sharing together and eating the same meals and uh, doing the same work. So you could say that's not really a fair criticism, but it's something that's not really built out, out right? C.S. Lewis is kind of doesn't really go too deep into the economic underpinnings of, of why some humans suffer and some seem to get through life so easily. And he also kind of doesn't go into, which was kind of the, the striking absence for me, the psychology of consumerism and the, the way in which that could be like this desire to, um, to shop essentially um, and to choose you know, to sort of shop for stuff, to shop for identity, to shop for, to, to make ourselves um, into kind of, um, to decorate ourselves in various ways. Um, and that's kind of the wrong way to put it, but just like um, the consumeristic approach. To create approach, our identity yeah. through our consumption. Yeah, the consumeristic approach to identity that is really so central to the way that we get screwed up, basically. Um, that, that that's sort of didn't seem to be on his horizon. And I kind of feel like probably with, you know, 1943, you know, you don't have any jam or, or butter. So it's really, it's not something that you're really experiencing. Um, yeah, we're probably being the, deeply unfair here. Yeah, but, but that is an aspect of today's, you know, uh, technological world um, that is not fully for you know fully prophesied you could say in c.s lewis's book right the, the the dominance of the need to turn people into consumers 
Well, again, I think that's just one of the things that the book isn't really about. And like Susanna said, this was in wartime, right? So people, I mean, everything was going into the war effort. Um, and there is actually a shopping scene, Susanna, where, where she goes out and, and buys a hat because she's trying to comfort herself. Yes. And that's like <laughs> one of the really female. But that's a good thing. Yeah. That's I mean, like, that's a that's... good scene. Yeah, she's she's that was of, good shopping, um, good consumerism. She's she's uh, exercising her feminine nature, much to her own annoyance. Um. <laughs> but even there, you know, like shopping for a hat. I mean, that's something that her Victorian grandmother would have done. It it wasn't. It, it's not consumerist in a kind of mid twentieth century sense. So I have a question. So <laughs> another one, other sort of thing that I think we should talk about is. Other than Lewis, um, things that Lewis didn't get right, are there ways in which this doesn't work as a novel? Um, first of all, I do want to say it is one of my favorite novels. I love this novel. I do not think it is a perfect novel. Um, and I wondered whether you guys had any critiques. Pete, you had an interesting one from earlier today. Oh, uh, I'm more interested in what Mariana has to say. Yeah, Mariana, what do you... I would probably say about the same. It's the novel I really love. Is it a perfect novel? No, I think, um, you know, it was written pretty quickly, it seems like to me. I think he's a little self-indulgent about some things in ways that don't actually bother me. But is it like Dostoevsky? No, not really. Um, but in a way, to me, it's, it's a book that's that's a wonderful, it's a great book, not because it's a great piece of literature, but because it says great things about human beings and how they should live. Um, I think you can criticize it as a literary work pretty easily. Is it a book I always enjoy re when I, you know, when I pick it up and, and reread? Absolutely. The one, my big criticism of it is whoever publishes it every single time, the cover art is just so bad. And so somebody could fix that once would be oh great. Oh my gosh. It's really hideous and it's never been good. That's probably the worst thing about the novel is the covers that people have put on it. The thing that Lewis was criticized for by reviewers right from the start was that the allegory in the book is on the heavy-handed side, which is interesting because Lewis, uh, in his uh, book on 16th century English literature, is pretty damning about allegory. Um, yet he actually loves it. And the characters of Mark and Jane are... I think very subtly drawn and very memorable. So if the measure of a great book is that there are things that stick in your mind and you never forget, it's absolutely a great book. The good characters are a bit like the good characters in Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, which Lewis also loved. Um, just a little bit more boring than the bad characters. Um, and, and that, maybe it's just a fact of of fiction right that goodness is so hard to convey well i think they're boring in a good way like i love the scene where jane goes out with this other young couple um arthur Denison and, and his wife and they go and have a little picnic in the woods and it's just such a comfortable you know homey scene of people being together um and in opposition, you get these horrific people at the NICE, and there's these these really horrible scenes as Mark is trying to push his way into the inner circle, and they're um, leading him on and and using fear, um, and eventually they get him. Um, he, he's compromised himself, and they're holding you know the death penalty over his head and stuff, and and just just really um, claustrophobically frightening. Um, so I think. The, the kind of boringness of the good scenes is a really welcome um, antidote to, to the 
evil of the evil people. I actually did look forward to the boring good scenes. And maybe the problem that we're talking about is not a a literary problem, but actually just a fact of life, right? And we run into that in editing Plow Magazine, that when you're writing about good people doing good things, it is really hard to do that in a way that is as compelling as writing about a horrible thing that's happening somewhere. Well, okay, so I I am going to disagree because I think that the there's there's something that Jane kind of runs into, which I think is kind of emblematic of this. Um, so at some at one point, she kind of when she's about to sort of when she's really realizing that she is in quite bad danger, like she might actually die, she has this moment of realization that like all of this stuff, that all of this um, the kind of golden Arthurian world that she's been invited into might actually just be the same thing as, you know, Mother Dimble saying her prayers, which is a kind of like boring, churchy thing that has always turned her off. And I actually think that the the kind of, there's this kind of t- dual level of the good the good people, the good household, where on the one level, it's very ordinary and very cozy and kind of very British and um, sweet and family-ish um and a kind of like wholesome intense wholesomeness as as a contrast to belberry and i love that because i'm a sucker for wholesome british things um or english things i should say um but at the same time there is this kind of like undercurrent of deep supernatural mystery to it and the overlay of that kind of supernatural mystery with the deeply ordinary kind of buttered toast and tea Englishness is, I find that fascinating. I don't think it's boring at all. And I, I find it more interesting than Belberry, which seems to me to be just like kind of Fellini, but nightmarish. Um, and it's such a, it's such a turnoff kind of that. Yeah. It's fascinating to witness in a way, but it's not, it doesn't draw you in. It kind of, it's re- deeply repulsive. And the the mystery at the heart of goodness is actually, I think, portrayed pretty darn well in the household at St. Anne's. So there's this scene at the end, right before the big showdown and the St. Anne's household is sitting together and they realize death could be imminent because there's this, you know, horrendous forces have been unleashed and they look around their circle and they each one realizes I, I I could die with these in a positive sense like I would be happy to go down with these people around me and they they say I that each one felt lucky to be there and I think that's that's the core of it that you can come to a place where you you know are in this ordinary household and community and yet your purpose is your, the shared purpose of fighting for the truest and goodest things you know, is what holds you together. And when push comes to shove, you'd be happy to go down with those people around you. And if you want to know why I love that book, that's why I love this book. Um, And I read that as probably a 16 or 17 year old. And you're like, you know, I need to find that group and I need to find that purpose um, so that when the push comes to shove, you do have that group of people around you. So that's... um, Same. There's the the other. I mean, if if we're gonna do favorite lines, my other um, favorite line is where um, Mark Studdick is confronted by one of the members of the household, and and he's kind of given a choice. You know, you either go all the way with the wicked people, or you you know come over to our side. And at that point, he's not ready to, and he's kind of 
you know, prevaricating and saying, well, you know, choices, you know, and, and he's told, listen, you have no choice. And there's things here with which, you know, the life or happiness of you and me are completely immaterial things that are so much more important than you and me. And yet we're, you know, allowed to be part of this, you know, struggle. And, and which side are you going to, are you going to come down on? Um, so that's, that's another uh, exchange, which I, you kind know, of took with me from uh, my first reading. The other, the other sort of criticism that people often make is that the there's something a little bit one-dimensional about some of the good characters, although not all of them. Um, and I think that an aspect of that is, I don't actually think one-dimensional is the right way to think about it. What they are is their archetypes. And they're very explicitly archetypes in one of the later scenes. Like th these are people who are, you know, their role here is to kind of live out these, um, you know, there's a kind of like mother dimple is a kind of um not mother goddess figure because this is a completely christian book but like she's 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 motherhood she's not just she's not just a person she's also motherhood and um you know camilla is kind of like wifehood to a certain degree and all of these different um aspects of humanity in a slightly Jungian way um which sometimes i don't think is done well, but I think Lewis does it very well. Um, these are people who are real people, you know, in, in the novel, but they're living out um, vocations of archetypal, um, a, a kind of archetypal calling, which is, that's kind of the appeal of um, the King Arthur stories as well. Like that's, this is, this is why we love King Arthur. This is why there's there's a lot of this kind of in um, medieval and Renaissance English English literature, and I think that Lewis was tapping very much into that. Um, and it's a different kind of a thing than like deeply imagined psychological novelizing, you know, Dostoevsky or something like that. Um, but Mark and Jane, as as you said, Peter, like they are really finely drawn, and part of the reason that they're um, you know they're more complicated is that they're they're in progress like they're very they're they're both double-minded and the the evil people at in the nice have really they're quite far along in becoming their worst selves um they're pretty they're pretty disintegrated as human creatures there's not much to them other than evil um and kind of showing the i guess the banality of evil is one way to think about it. I think that's th that's something that Lewis does really well in the Space Trilogy in general, especially in Paralandra, actually, um, which, again, you should just all, everyone should read all of these books. Um, but I think that there is something deeply banal about the NICE as well. And the the good people, the people in, in St. Anne's, other than, other than Jane and to a certain degree McPhee, they're pretty far along in becoming themselves as well. So these are very, they're very solid. And that means that Mark and Jane are the ones where, they're the ones where the drama is playing out, the drama of like human becoming and human choice. Um, and I, I just think it's a really well done um, book exploring what it looks like to, <laughs> to choose whether or not to be human. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. 
$36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com slash membership to learn more.